Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Andrew Warner, one of the producers of this podcast, your host for this episode, and an unapologetic tree appreciator. Many years ago, a new friend lent me a book called Trees in Paradise, A California History. I always had a soft spot for historical narratives that decentered the human, that examined our relationship to material goods or plants to look at humanity in a new way. I love the book. It told the story of California's history through our relationship with sequoias, citrus, eucalyptus, and palms. When I heard there was a new book that traced the cultural history of humans' relationship with very old trees, I was delighted to hear it was also by the same author, Jared Farmer. In reading Jared's new book, Elder Flora, I found myself underlining constantly, eventually realizing that it underlined the entire introduction, which sort of defeats the purpose of underlining in the first place. But one thing that stuck with me was Jared's definition of trees. Trees are plants that humans call trees. It is a term of dignity, not of botany. Trees are plants with the torso and limbs, plants that we project humanness onto. Since the beginning of recorded history, and almost certainly before, humans have been projecting their values onto trees. And when we encounter extremely old trees, we use these ancient beings as time machines to the deep past and distant future to understand ourselves as long-term thinkers. Before we get to the root of our long obsession with ancient trees, a quick note. All of the Long Now Foundation support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. You make all of this possible. If you haven't yet joined, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Without further ado, let's hear from Jared Farmer about chronodiversity and how we can think about time with trees. I am delighted to be here speaking to members, friends, and followers of the Long Now Foundation, a legacy of the social network of Stuart Brand. Very few institutions in the Bay Area retain some of the old spirit of Silicon Valley, the Long Now, Wikimedia, Mozilla, and the Internet Archive come first in my mind, and surely it's not a coincidence these are all nonprofits. I'm here to talk about the timefulness of trees. The age of wood has never ended. Humans have not yet created any synthetic material as amazing as lignin. In my book, I focus on the oldest lignophytes, or what I like to call timeful plants, or elder flora. In my usage, that word encompasses a range of old things or beings from the vegetable kingdom, the slow-growing, the long-living, the even longer-dying, the durable and the preservable, the millennial and the multi-millennial, the ancient and the sacred. It turns out there are many ways of being old and many ways of measuring and valuing oldness. In other words, elder flora contribute to chronodiversity as well as biodiversity. The plants we call trees are invaluable for long-term thinking precisely because they embody various dimensions of long time. So A, trees, living and dead, can be old specimens. B, trees can comprise old populations. C, 
Trees can be the inheritors of old genetic lineages, and D, trees can be in old relationships with people as part of age-old practices. Here's a picture from Norfolk, England, that evokes what I mean. This timber circle, known as Seahenge, existed in place for approximately 4,000 years. The sacred enclosure had an upturned stump of an oak at its center, its roots reaching to the heavens. Archaeologists think the body of an honored person was placed upon this local cosmic tree. Buried in sand for centuries, this arboreal monument was exhumed by a winter storm in 1998 and excavated and preserved for museum display. Here's another picture from England from this past September. The iconic sycamore that stood in this gap in Hadrian's Wall was only about 200 years old when it met a violent end. But the vast grief about its death speaks to longer time frames. The architectural location of the sycamore gap tree gave it resonance with the Roman period, while its cinematic appearance in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, lent it associations with the medieval period. Because a tree is basically a plant filled with human meaning, any tree can potentially have timefulness beyond its organismal age. And through the nurturing of offshoots, a tree's effective lifetime can be extended. Some hold out that this Northumbrian landmark will, like a coppice tree, resprout from the stump. After all, the ficus by the main temple at Bodhagaya, India, is not any older than the sycamore at Hadrian's Wall, yet its germplasm goes back many more centuries, perhaps millennia the same sacred fig at the same holy site. In my book, Elder Flora, I show how long-term relationships with long-lived plants bridge the gap between deep time and short time. You could say my book covers a long then that complements the long now. The people who built Seahenge are as foreign as can be, yet we can relate to them emotionally as fellow humans who cared about the dead and who turned to trees to help them understand their human condition. I move by the combination of vegetal longevity and cultural continuity. I want that long-term relationship to go on and on, even as people and plants continue to evolve. The sustaining of interspecies intergenerational relationships requires a practice and a theory of action. You could conceptualize those sustaining acts as obligation, devotion, service, or care, or like Stuart Brand, you could call it maintenance. Not everywhere can you build a clock of the long now, but practically every city in its charter could resolve to maintain its own organic landmark and time marker, a site-specific tree of the long now, as a living connection between the past, present, and future. Now that I provided that context, I'm going to move on to a more technical discussion of vegetal longevity. In the absence of historical documentation, how do scientists measure organismal age? When it comes to the plants we call trees, there are three main techniques. One is exact, 
another is estimated to a standard margin of error, and one is guesstimated to varying percentages of probability. The first technique consists of counting growth rings one by one. This can be done with a stump, though that requires a felled tree, except in exceptional unethical situations, treating scientists, dendrochronologists, don't kill trees in order to date them. Instead, they screw in an increment borer and extract a core sample, hoping they have hit the pith. Thus, the category oldest known is epistemological as well as biological. It's a subset of the oldest knowable. This subcategory comprises only non-clonal, single-trunked, woody plants with uneroded piths that can be dated all the way to the first years of growth. Very few trees meet these requirements, it turns out. Almost all woody plants hollow out with time. Only the most resinous heartwood and the most antiseptic environments doesn't decay on the scale of centuries. Treeving scientists face other barriers. Some solid growers like giant sequoia are simply too thick for boring to the center, and some ancient trees are considered too sacred by local guardians to permit core sampling. So technicians may turn to the second technique, radiocarbon dating. For this to work, it actually helps to have a hollow tree, allowing access to inner wood, assuming some of the oldest material remains. C14 dating is also a good choice for plants that don't produce annular growth rings or don't produce wood at all. Although radiocarbon allows reliable estimates of date ranges, it cannot lead to exact dates. The third technique guesstimates age from morphology, size, and shape. In essence, people calculate arboreal age by multiplying the trunk's diameter at breast height by a certain factor. The formula can be more or less complex and more or less accurate, depending on the level of knowledge about the growth habits of the species in specific habitats and also the availability of correlating tree ring data. The first species subject to sustained scientific scrutiny in regard to longevity was European yew. In the 18th and 19th centuries, many learned Britons tried and failed to give exact dates to hollowed and hallowed specimens in Anglican churchyards. Techniques improved in the 1990s when radiocarbon and treeving data permitted refinement of girth-to-age formulas. A recent reappraisal puts the majority of Britain's churchyard use under one millennium, though that's still ridiculously old, to quote one of the investigators. Where do the world's oldest trees live out their days? The use of the British Isles provide a clue. You see these evergreens in churchyards, cemeteries, arboretums, and manor gardens as common landscape features. And you can, if you really go searching, find uncommon yew populations in isolated wildwoods or cliffy habitats. Thus, there are two main placeways to longevity. You find old ones either close to people or isolated from them. Humans have a very long history of venerating and tending big old trees. They have an equally long history of burning and felling and otherwise harming them. In churchyards, shrines, and temple compounds, ancient trees persist with the aid of caretakers. These plants 
or their scions can live for centuries at such consecrated sites. Sacred trees and sacred groves can be found throughout East Asia, Southeast and South Asia, Iran, Ethiopia, the British Isles, and Mexico. Jayashri Mahabodhi, the ficus at the center of the Buddhist pilgrimage site in Anurahapura, Sri Lanka, is probably the oldest living cultivated plant in terms of continuance of the same germplasm in the same locale. Analogously, in horticultural groves and pastoral woodlands, stewards have elongated the lives of trees through selective clearing or through pollarding and coppicing and pruning and so on. Woodland economies were very common in the pre-modern period, less so now after enclosure and forestry and colonialism, but there are big old relic woodland trees in the British Isles and the Mediterranean and also in the Amazon, where certain species like Brazil nuts have a distribution that demonstrates centuries of human tending. In the Mediterranean, there are many bogus claims of multimillennial olive trees, the truth is impressive enough. The oldest known cultivated olives are roughly 600 years old, old enough to be survivors of the Little Ice Age. These fruiters are genetic repositories of resilience and landmarks of cultural maintenance. Moreover, their human-selected germplasm may be centuries older. So in short, arboriculture in human haunts is one of two main placeways for trees to live large and live long. Inversely, stunted old trees persist without any human care or interference in sub-marginal habitats like New Mexico's El Malpais, fields of lava, Ontario's Niagara Escarpment, cliffs of dolomites, or New Jersey's pine barrens, expanses of sand. The longest-lived trees of eastern North America, bald cypress, grow in swamps and backwater rivers that frustrated industrial loggers. The eldest occur in backwater sections of North Carolina's Black River, just miles from land cleared long ago for tobacco. As only recently discovered, these bald cypresses reach ages of 2,600 years. As a rule, gymnosperms, flowerous plants with naked seeds, grow slower and live longer than angiosperms, flowering plants with fruits. For pines, 5,000 years is the approximate limit. Among angiosperms, the outlier is African baobab, capable of around 2,500 years. Gymnosperms include ginkgo, a genus of one, and every kind of conifer, including yews, pines, firs, spruces, cedars, redwoods, cypresses, podocarps, and araucarias. The cypress family contains the most thousand-year growers. Conifers achieve maximum longevity when conditions are cold and dry, or hot and dry, or steep and exposed, or high altitude, or nutrient poor, or all of the above in the case of Great Basin bristlecone pine, the longest living plant on the planet. There's an apt maxim developed in the 1950s by tree ring scientist Edmund Schulman, longevity under adversity. Besides adverse habitat, the strongest correlation with long life is chemical. Longevous conifers produce copious resins, volatile aromatic hydrocarbons like terpenes that inhibit fungal rot and insect predation. 
a high elevation habitat offers additional protection from enemies, competitors, and fire, provided that the trees can tolerate dryness and cold. In habitats with chronic stress, conifers grow slower and stockier. Slow wood growth generates more lignin, another organic polymer with defensive properties. If dwarfism provides one biological pathway to longevity, gigantism provides another. Mega conifers such as coast redwood in California and Alerce in Chile and Kauri in New Zealand are more likely to survive any discrete attack. In cycles of forest regeneration, they tend to be the first and the last. They grow quickly as seedlings, establishing soil space, and they just keep on growing vertically, claiming canopy space. Long life is necessary because opportunities to establish new populations, conditions following intense disturbance, occur infrequently. This life strategy of largeness comes with one big downside, the risk of falling. Gravity can be as fatal as rot. Another trade-off, the burden of transporting water skyward, explains why the tallest conifers occur in humid, temperate zones. Of some 140,000 species of woody plants, only 30 can produce specimens that reach 1,000 years or older. Of those millennials, only about 10 can reach 2,000 years, and of those supermortals, all of them conifers, only three can produce trimillennials, and only one, to current definitive knowledge, can produce quadrimillennials. Western North America, especially California, is a longevity hotspot. Yeah. 1,000, a number that's both scientific and religious, metrical and spiritual, does not apply equally to all trees. An 800-year-old oak is, in its class, effectively as ancient as a 2,000-year-old pine. Besides, not every plant that lives a long time is categorized as a tree, a term of dignity, not botany. Shrubby plants and clonal plants have not yet received the same ethical consideration and legal protection. Here's a picture of a Palmer's oak in Riverside County that may well be growing in the same site where it has been regrowing for 10,000 years. When I paid my respects at this unmarked site, my pilgrimage path was a dumping ground on a dirt bike track. Old ones can be found everywhere if people take the time to look. However, it is undeniable and heartbreaking that many of the largest and oldest trees that Californians took for granted in the 20th century are in big trouble, if not recently dead. Now follows the melancholy portion of my talk concerning elder flora in crisis. The stakes and the scale of forest stewardship have changed in the climate emergency. Large-scale protection of habitat is no longer enough and must be paired with rapid decarbonization of the economy. Otherwise, the future for old growth is ashes. Whole forests of fire-resistant giant sequoia, a protected species that lives as long as 3,000 years, have recently gone up in flames, all the way to the crown, something never observed before. 
whole stands of drought-resistant grape based in bristlecone pine, a protected species that can reach 5,000 years, have been sucked dry by bark beetles, something never observed before. Just this past summer, in Mojave National Preserve, fire destroyed mature populations of Joshua tree. Meanwhile, in the Sonoran Desert, 31 straight days with highs above 110 degrees Fahrenheit pushed many giant saguaros past their limit. In other parts of the world, megaflora similarly struggle. In southern Africa, monumental baobabs, the longest living flowering plants, have buckled under the stress of hotter droughts. The iconic cedars of Mount Lebanon, ancient symbols of longevity, struggle in warmer, drier conditions. Millennial cowries in New Zealand and centenarian olive trees in Italy are succumbing to invasive diseases. Cumulatively, this is more than a cyclical turnover. This is part of a great diminution. Fewer megaflora, fewer elder flora, fewer old growth forests, fewer ancient species, fewer species overall. Although Earth's tree cover, three trillion plants, covering roughly 30% of all land, has expanded of late, the canopy increasingly consists of trees planted for timber, for paper pulp, for cooking oil, and for the services of windbreaks and carbon offsets. It's young stuff. Old growth communities are scarce and getting scarcer. Ancient trees provide services too, ecosystem services, as ecologists say. Old trees help sustain species richness. They drop seeds and litter eaten and used by animals on the ground. And up high, they host epiphytes and birds. In Megaloman's formulation, there's a lively eighth continent up in the canopy. The ecosystem underground might as well be a ninth. In some situations, the nutrients get shared among trees through mycorrhizae, the symbiotic association between fungi and plants at the root level. Preliminary research on these networks suggests that big old trees may have outsized importance, serving as hubs for many other trees. The science is still a work in progress, and it's a personification fallacy to say that trees are communicating or nurturing or mothering or altruistically sharing. We may need to invent new vocabulary if field observation backs up experiments in greenhouses where hubs redistribute life-giving nutrients of nitrogen and carbon, first to their own kind, secondarily to out-of-kin plant, and sometimes even to competitor plants. For a seedling, the connectivity of a big old tree may mean the difference between death and a long, long life. In any case, the destruction of old growth inescapably has an underground dimension. Each old growth tree is by itself a precious genetic depository. According to models, one quarter of the trees in an old growth forest will be triple or quadruple the median age and one one-hundredth will be 10 or 20 times the median age. Each plant in this latter group arose at a specific moment in the past when favorable conditions allowed for their establishment, conditions that may not recur for centuries. As bridges between pasts and possible futures, these plants contribute genetic resilience to the whole population. 
The eldest are irreplaceable for science, too. Like I said, only about 30 plant species can live beyond one millennium, and they're mainly conifers of primeval lineage. Their genetic codes, the product of hundreds of millions of years of evolution, contain information we have barely begun to analyze. As genetic sequencing advances, people may find new applications for the DNA of thousand-year-old trees. Certain millennial conifers, such as bristlecone, have rare instrumental value too. Their tree rings are living data, proxies for temperature, winter snows, summer droughts, supervolcanic eruptions, and stellar proton events. Dendrochronologists use them to reconstruct past climates and to model future ones. As climate recorders, these tree rings are comparable to ice layers only. More sensitive. Also, on a utilitarian level, the populations of old trees temporarily absorb some of the excess carbon in the atmosphere. The slower the trees grow, the higher their potential for negative emissions. The longer they delay death and decomposition, the longer they sequester greenhouse gases. This is why conservation of existing old growth, aka prof. Forestation ranks first in climate impact, followed by reforestation and then afforestation. Nonetheless, some corporate entities have single-mindedly pursued tree planting to offset emissions. These initiatives have a spotty implementation record. Even in a best-case management scenario, there's not enough available land to grow enough trees to solve the climate crisis. While I reject Bill Gates' characterization of tree centrism as idiocy, I fear that Mark Benioff's tech optimism about trees is misplaced. Trees are not the answer, unless you reframe the question. The proper question concerns biodiversity and its complement, chronodiversity, not sequestration. There's an underlying capitalist poverty to thinking about trees as primarily carbon sinks or service providers. I prefer to think of them as gift givers. Of all their gifts to humans, the greatest are temporal and ethical. They inspire long-term thinking. They encourage Homo sapiens to be sapient. They engage our deepest, slowest faculties to revere. To analyze, to meditate. Can we revere at scale in time to avert chronodiversity loss? History suggests we have great capacity. Tales of sacred plants and their keepers and their desecrators are among the oldest living stories, from Gilgamesh plundering the cedar forest to Siddhartha meditating beneath the Bodhi tree. Among plants, there are ephemerals, annuals, biennials, perennials, and beyond them all, a category I call perdurables. Perdurance is resilience over a long time. Humans can cultivate this attribute for themselves by caring for old trees and the old to be. Nodding to Stuart Brand, you might say that arboriculture is really cultural maintenance through arboreal care. Maintaining long-term relationships with long-lived plants is a rejection of the end, 
an affirmation that there will be, must be, many more tomorrows. That being said, I think it's quite likely there will be an interregnum, perhaps centuries long, when most embodied humans on Earth will lack personal familiarity and easy access to big old trees. The ongoing demise of megaflora can be roughly compared to the late Pleistocene extinctions and the lost world of megafauna that haunts our mammalian imagination. We wonder, what was it like for our remote ancestors to live alongside mastodons and other giants? Our not-so-distant descendants may wonder, how did it feel to visit mammoth and millennial trees? Some of the greatest plants that ever lived, organic landmarks of the Holocene, will be relegated to libraries, electronic databases, and other technologies of memory. Modern people barely had time to cherish age-old plants like sequoias before their goodbyes began. And how will people adjust to that loss? Will they even notice? Maybe future generations will live online in a way that makes our ubiquitous touchscreens seem positively analog. Humans are nothing but adaptable. I do worry, though, how many old things our species can lose before humankind becomes unmoored. Consider three primal and embodied experiences of the long then. First, our distant evolutionary ancestors gazed up at bright constellations in the dark night skies and thereby experienced a vaster sense of celestial scale. Second, our hominin ancestor kin lived among megafauna and megaflora and thereby experienced a vaster sense of terrestrial scale. Third, our direct human ancestors revered elderflora and thereby experienced a vaster sense of time. So many cosmologies, mythologies, scriptures, epics, and folktales include two or three of these elements, bright stars, big animals, old trees. So I'm struck that these foundational experiences of the cosmic shared by humans for a million years may disappear in an evolutionary instant. Indeed, the majority of urban people, who are now the majority of all humans, already lack these experiences, except on screens. I'm worried about this extinction of experience in the long now. I think we should work our hardest to preserve old trees less for carbon accounting than for our own humanity. Accelerating the energy transition is paying forward to future people who have a right to a future planet with chronodiversity as well as biodiversity. Humans may seem infinitely adaptable, but I'm not sure what would happen to our species if everything in the world becomes young, new, novel, and virtual. Cultural rejuvenation must draw from a reservoir of oldness, a monochronic tech future. Every day is day one, every morning is zero day. This future promises a lot of productivity and a lot of passivity, but does it promote creative continuity. To describe the novelty of our current situation, the era of the human altered planet, the so-called Anthropocene, many tree people, not just me, have been looking for new words. 
or old words to use in new ways. You may have heard the term rampike. I think I first encountered it in Elizabeth Rush's book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. You can see from the OED that this word has been around since the 18th century, but rarely used. Its frequency of usage is sure to go up in the coming years as people confront more and more ghost forest near the new sea level as glaciers melt, oceans encroach, and salt water intrudes. Some trees, like those in mangroves, can handle a lot of salt. Most cannot. Another phrase you'll hear is phantom forest, which is the unintended outcome of a large-scale tree planting effort. It's lovely to imagine that when you purchase a carbon offset, an organic solar-powered air purifier is planted somewhere, and there it will grow and thrive and sequester for the next 50 years until, fingers crossed, our energy transition to net zero is complete. Like I suggested, though, the actual record of carbon offsetting tree planting initiatives too often consists of greenwashing. These efforts are susceptible to fraud and corruption or simple negligence. Trees need maintenance, but for that you need local buy-in. Ironically, climate-friendly plantings are vulnerable to climate change. Hotter, drier droughts can turn grids of saplings into scrawny versions of Maya Lin's ghost forest. A transplanted grid of crownless Atlantic white cedars that had died as a cohort in coastal New Jersey. Lynn created this to be a memorial to things we are losing to climate change. Another phrase I like is shadow forest. I encountered it on the platform formerly known as Twitter. Basically, these forests are shadows of their former selves. Paraphrasing Evan Frost, a forest ecologist, you could say a shadow forest is a forest community pushed so far from baseline conditions by anthropogenic factors that it no longer functions ecologically the same way. Appalachian forests without American chestnut, a keystone species lost to blight, is a good example, though there's now a new transgenic blight-resistant chestnut awaiting USDA approval. That kind of intervention, alongside assisted migration, will become more common, I predict, as the whole planet leaves baseline conditions. But we should be wary of some neologisms. Sometimes words can be too cute, too clickbaity. I don't like how even scientists and historians have to play influencer now. Anthropogenic climate change may be novel, but from planet Earth's point of view, over deep time, there is nothing new under the sun. When Stanford scientists recently announced, in the New York Times, no less, the arrival of zombie forests, I had to roll my eyes. That's taking it too far. We shouldn't need to sensationalize science for a fast news cycle. A zombie is a mythological, undead, corporeal revenant that moves and eats human flesh. That's a bizarre descriptor for communities of rooted photosynthetic organisms that are living out of time, so to speak in their climate space. Ecologists would call this a large-scale selection event and a vegetative type conversion in process. It's sad news for ponderosa pines, or really for the people who love ponderosa pines. It's bad news for the Golden State's greenhouse gas sequestration calculations. But from an evolutionary point of view, 
It's good news for chaparral species. On my website, on the page called Elder Flora, there's a link to a document with definitions of keywords. The PDF there is called Lexicon for Slow Plants on a Burning Planet. To wrap up, I'll tell you that I experience chronodiversity almost every day. Whenever I see ginkgos, they grow from Philadelphia sidewalks. That's where I live. And those sidewalks in Philadelphia seem far more inhospitable than the White Mountains of California. The genus ginkgo evolved before the dinosaurs, and like many gymnosperms, persisted through the remainder of the Mesozoic era, which I like to call the Coniferous era, and persisted through hot, warm, and cold Earths, living throughout the Northern Hemisphere, including the Arctic, surviving multiple mass extinction events, diminishing ever so gradually to refugia in East Asia before being redistributed around the world by urbanites. Contemplating all the lifetimes of ginkgo and other gymnosperms, I feel awe. The combination of lignin biosynthesis with photosynthesis, a combo that goes back nearly half a billion years, remains a singular outcome of evolutionary history. Light-eating lignophytes are perfectly adapted for long-term existence on Earth. They stand as the ultimate terrestrials. We humans, by contrast, can dream of leaving this planet, or we can apply our intelligence and imagination to the grand project of evolving in earthly coexistence for even a fraction of the coniferous era. So I say, long live elder flora and the people who want to maintain an even longer now with them. Thank you. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, so in your research, you document many cases where people do the right thing for the wrong reason. So for example, 20th century Arbo nationalism, one of my favorite uh, words from the book, where many trees got saved in a fit of nationalistic fervor. Does it matter why we're saving trees, or should we just be thankful that they're being saved regardless of the questionable motives that may underlie it? Trees have been saved for the wrong reasons, for sure. Um, there's a lot of nasty people in my book, as well as like glorious trees. Um, I, I talk about the history of a type of protected area called uh, Monuments of Nature. It started in Europe, Central Europe, in the late 19th century. It was kind of an answer to the American National Park. A monument of nature is like very small scale. You're protecting like an individual tree or bog or heath, and it's often for like scientific reasons. And it's a very beautiful idea, and it had a lot of good science behind it. And on one level, you think like, okay, this is all about like kind of subnational, regional, even local sense of place. It's like really beautiful, right? And like, there's no way that could be co-opted by, you know, ultra-nationalists. But of course, <laughs> you're wrong, right? If you look at the history of like Third Reich, in fact, um, you know, subnationalism like Heimat does get co-opted by fascists. And you see this in other um, instances. You see it in Japan, you know, even like in India and uh, Sri Lanka with, you know, Bodhi trees. Like there are ways that they have been 
kind of caught up in ethno-nationalism and ethno-nationalist conflicts. How Americans in the early 20th century sort of responded to that European movement for monuments of nature. This is after they created like Sequoia National Park and groups, um, especially groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution, but lots of other groups protected, designated, uh, monumentalized, put plaques uh, around trees all over the country, and they named them. And it was all in service of a very particular white colonial, a very racist um, vision of American history. Um, does that mean we should like tear down these trees? Like, no, <laughs> like, trees are wonderful, and it's not the tree's fault. Um, are we glad trees like that were protected? Of course, but can we do better? Yes. I would say, that to me, like one of the great challenges of our moment now is like meeting that kind of local level love of place with this kind of planetary crisis, the solutions to which are at such a high level, right? Politically and technologically, but in a democracy like ours, long may it live, um, you need voters who feel emotionally about you know, the earth system, but that's very hard, but you can feel about local nature. So how you kind of connect the local and the subnational. So I, so I do think there's a, a role for this, but we should always be wary. Like anything can be made fascist by fascist, right? It's even trees. Um, but I do believe that like cultivating local place attachments so that people have a local reason to care about planetary management, because people don't live and feel on those terms, even though we have to, we have to be thinking on both levels. And that's, that's, that's a roundabout way of answering your question, but uh, I'm glad these trees were protected, but we can do better and we, and we must, yeah. Thank you, yeah, that um, the answer reminds me of some trees close to where I live, um, the eucalyptus in the East Bay Hills. Um, where sort of planetary consciousness of um, you know forest fire management is at odds with the sense of place and the people who have fallen in love with these trees. Yeah, in my previous uh, book, I wrote a lot about eucalyptus. That book's called Trees in Paradise, a California history. And yes, it was a mistake to bring eucalyptus to California, but it was a beautiful mistake. And it, it contributes to the sense of place for so many Californians. Totally does not belong in certain situations. It can be a terrible fire hazard, and but it isn't always a terrible fire hazard. It isn't inherently terrible. It's all it's very place specific. Um, but you can't go back in time. You know, it happened, and I think I, for one, and you know, I think as a historian, you have to kind of sometimes yeah, you work with the world that you were. Um, born to, right? And um, you honor the mistakes of the past as well as, you know, the things that you uh, agree with. Because, you know, we're making mistakes too, as well as like leaving a legacy. And sometimes it's hard to know in the moment, right? Like what future generations will make of all of our endeavors, but you just have to keep going and be generous to people in the past as well as thinking about people in the future that you want to be generous to as well. Thanks. Um, in your book, you note some success stories where trees were protected by working with the traditional caretakers of these ancient right. trees, so namely the indigenous people of the area. Is this sort of sensible approach finally seeming to gain traction, or are we just doomed to keep repeating the same conservation 
follies of the past. Oh, it's definitely getting checked. I mean, the current U.S. Interior Secretary, Deb Haaland, is a big advocate of indigenous co-management of certain national park units, which is wonderful. And you see the same thing happening in New Zealand, to a lesser extent in Chile. I talk about all these in my book. Um, just to kind of back up a little bit, you know, in the modern period, you, you got kind of a bifurcation of land use because in pre-modern periods, it was basically very, very common to have inhabited woodlands of various types. You know, people lived in woodlands and they cared for trees. Um, but in the modern period, through forestry and enclosure and colonialism, basically you get, I'm simplifying it, but you get basically protected forests where people can't live, you're not allowed to live, and people are kicked out, local people, indigenous peoples, workers, whatever. Um, and then you get places with no trees, because the trees have been clear. They've been like cut down so you can build cities or grow crops. So you get these, and I think there's been a return in the last 50 years to this model of like inhabited, you know, working forests. Um, and, you know, in California, a great example is the Yurok people who have a, you know, incredibly deep and old relationship to coast redwoods, you know, live there for so many thousands of years and they are, they own more and more land. And I think the National Park Service is increasingly uh, open to the idea of co-management of Redwood National Park. And again, that's a larger conversation with the Park Service and the Interior Department and various tribal groups throughout the American West. And that's very encouraging. So we've been preserving trees for as long as we've been humans. And then um, later we'll often find use cases for these old trees, like the tree ring data of getting sort of exact mm -hmm. um, climate. What use cases do you think we're gonna find in the future when we develop maybe new technologies to look at these um, at these species we've been saving? Like what, okay. what unexpected uses do you think you're, there's gonna be? You're asking a historian to make predictions. That's like the, <laughs> the, the, tr the track record of historians making predictions is so bad. Like that, that's just, <laughs> That's just not what we do. So like, I'm gonna pass on that, but just say that we don't know, and that's all the more reason to like, protect these things. Cause like, you're right. You just, you want more material to work with um, scientifically, but also we don't know what artists in the future, or I mean, again, it's, it's providing gifts for the future, as well as like honoring trees for themselves, just as like amazing things that evolved here long before us. But um, I don't know. <laughs> totally fair. Um, Janet asks, do you think trees get lonely? No, because trees don't have feelings. <laughs> um, I have mixed feelings about uh, a, a lot of the books. There was kind of like a peak tree moment. I want to say my books kind of missed it. Uh, my publisher's unhappy about it, but like maybe five to ten years ago, there was like peak tree, right? There were so many books. Uh, the, the Peter Volaben and... Richard Powers and Susan Samard being like the really outstanding examples, but there were dozens more. And a lot of these books kind of personified trees in a way that I think many scientists find uncomfortable because um, trees are radically different, radically alien from us. That means, you know, they're modular organisms that they don't, yeah, they don't live and die like us. They don't exist like, they certainly don't have feelings and they don't talk though they may communicate. We just don't have the vocabulary. I mean, it's a, it's a real problem, like, talking about trees, because we cannot 
avoid personification. And, and, and my, the book is, my book is full of this tension. Like I, I'm skeptical of personification, but then I realize there's such a deep history of people personifying tree. And the whole concept of tree is an example of personification. So in the end, I, I, I'm okay with it, as long as we acknowledge what we're doing. It's like we're limited in our own imagination to kind of like describe trees. And maybe someday, I don't know, we will evolve enough and we'll understand that we ourselves are you know, super organisms, you know, like we are our bacteria kind of thing and, um, and think of ourselves as we, each individual as a we that is relating to a plant as a fellow we and it can, but for the moment anyway, I think we're stuck with personification. So like mother tree, for example, like that's a beautiful concept. It's a beautiful book. Um, but I think, I, I know there are some scientists and some feminists and some feminist scientists who, object to that because it's, it's, again, it's sort of suggesting that altruistic sharing or giving or you know, the different kind of metaphors people use for this wood wide web is that's like, that's like women's work, right? It's creating an analogy, right? That, that caring, nurturing, giving is women's work and that we need to be careful of the metaphors we use. And so in my book, even though it's not like I call out anybody, it's not my style, but in the end, I prefer just to call them old ones and to capitalize it, because I got really sick of grandfather trees. There's a whole lot of grandfather trees. There's a whole lot of trees named after presidents and dictators and you know discoverers and everything. Um, but I, I, I share the discomfort too with grandmother trees and mother trees, and so I thought, old one, maybe that works. Um, one of the big themes of your book is how we think about trees is a great way to understand how we think about ourselves. What metaphors and meanings are we currently imbuing onto trees, and what do you think it means about how we're thinking about ourselves in the current moment? So, yeah, like the wood wide but, web, is that I mean, just that's kind us? of like, yeah, an extension of what I was just saying. Um, the wood wide web, again, it's, it's a great, it's a cool idea. Does it describe reality? Like, maybe not. Um, but why, why was it so popular? Um, I mean, there is some sort of you know, patchy network where trees and fungi are doing things together and we don't fully understand it and it's so cool. And it makes sense that we want to like, create an analogy with something that we think we understand. Like, do we really understand? I don't understand the world by web, honestly, but, um, but it's more familiar. And I think maybe this is just you know an idea like why the wood wide web became popular is that we all realized in the last five to ten years that the internet made us crazy, right? Especially social media. Uh, it was supposed to bring us closer together. You know, connectivity was supposed to be good, and in fact, we're all unhappy and miserable, and we hate each other and we distrust each other. You know, it led to alienation and distrust. And that feeling of, you know, like, ugly irony, like, the connectivity led to that. And so to imagine a network where plants are sharing altruistically, um, it's, it's, it's a lovely alternative, um, you know, whether or not, um, again, that's ex exactly what's happening, I don't know, but I think it speaks to, like, our political moment. Um, and to the extent that people turn to trees, like, I'm all for it. I think trees are wonderful. I, I became... Um, kind of a tree hugger 
against my will. I mean, I grew up, I grew up an environmentalist, you know, like when I said I'm like an earth first kind of humanist, like, you know, like I, I subscribed to Earth First Magazine as a teenager, but, but at some point, maybe in graduate school at Stanford, I, I, I started to like be very um, dismissive of tree huggers. But like with this book, I, I sort of came full circle. It's like, I am a proud tree hugger. And um, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I recommend um, cultivating, you know, deep relationships with trees. You can hug them or not, but um, they, they are so worthy of our deepest consideration. And I mean, we, you know, humans have such incredible minds, and but but trees are worthy. I mean, of of like everything we can give them with our with our minds. Yeah. All right. One last anthropomorphization question: If trees could talk, what do you think they would say? But they don't. <laughs> so we had uh, Suzanne Samard um, speak for us. It was, it was wonderful. And she brought up the point that basically the trees aren't going to migrate fast enough, right. that they need our help. Right. Um, so do you, do you think now is the time? Should we start planting Joshua trees in eastern Oregon, knowing that in 50 years that will be the new Mojave? I mean, you could. I don't, I don't know that Joshua trees are quite ready for Eastern Oregon, but um, Southern Great Basin, for sure. Um, the habitat's gonna go northward. And this is already happening right with Sequoia and Coast Redwood. And though people have been planting Coast Redwood and Sequoia all around the world since the mid-19th century. So this is not exactly new. Uh, maybe the sense of urgency. I guess my general attitude is that it's great to plant trees, I have no problem with like species moving here and there because that's what plants and animals and creatures do, right? That's just this kind of the story of Earth. Plants are everywhere all the time, and um, most of them will die because trees die. I mean, that's <laughs> like the kind of trees we're talking about are like the complete outliers. Most trees die. Um, so why are we doing this? I mean, basically, I think it's about emotional management. I mean, you're not going to like solve any climate crisis. You're not going to save the species, but um, if it fills you with a sense of purpose, it gives you hope. If, if, you, it, if you feel connected to the earth, if you feel connected to past generations who cared about these trees and you want future generations, like that's great. But you have to know, you, you, you have chosen that this species is more important than another one because we don't have enough resources in the world to like move all the species that need to be moved. It's just not gonna happen. So you just have to know like, you're doing this primarily for emotional reasons, which is not necessarily bad, but it's, it's not really about science or even about management. I would say it's, a, it's about emotional management, which we need, because this is hard emotionally. Um, that's a complicated answer, so I, I uh, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Human service or temporal service yeah. about an ecosystem. Yeah. Um, Similarly, any advice for those aspiring to grow thousand-year-old trees? Dustin asks. Wow, aspiring to grow thousand. I think basically you need to be community building, right? Because you are going to die long before your plant gets to your target date. So you need people in your community after you to want to care for it too, right? So it, yeah, it's about community building. So that kind of thought experiment of a tree of the long now. Um, 
I mean, it's not just a, like a, a fanciful idea, because there are, in fact, trees in sanctuaries and monasteries and um, temple compounds where people have kept the same germplasm. Because, you know, again, trees die, and that's fine. But there's something about this commitment, like, yes, we are going to like, keep this going. Um, we're going to maintain it. And, uh, but to maintain things, I mean, you need individual effort, but then you need someone after you who's going to pick up a job, and that requires community. And that's the most important thing of all, right? Yeah, I love the idea of the, um, the trees of the long now that each, each, each city could have uh, a symbol of itself as um, a sort of very old tree in the center. I, I assume there's a strong history to this already, but are people already actively doing this currently? Not that I know of. I'm just trying to get that idea out there. <laughs> But it's right. an old idea. It sounds like it's up yeah. to everyone out here. But of course, it is an old idea too, because again, there are ancient cities um, that had, you know, sacred trees. This is—I um, didn't make up the idea, but I don't actually know of any city. Uh, I would love to know if anybody knows. Let me know um, that has like rewritten its charter to say that you know we, the people of the city, you know, like pledge to try to keep a tree alive in this spot as long as the city shall live. I mean, that, that's, that's a powerful kind of commitment. Um, and the good thing about trees, again, it's like, it, if it dies, you can grow it back. Um, Wonderful. So it's about you know, maintaining the relationship in place rather than like fetishizing like, you know, this wood, this tree ring. I mean, my book is, in a sense, it's, it's, it's about the search for the oldest living thing, but not to give it away in the end, I don't think it matters that much because <laughs> that, that's not what really matters. It, what really matters is that old things endure and old relationships endure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I found myself thinking a great deal about this talk since we recorded it, and especially about that feeling of awe that Jared describes in recognizing the chronodiversity all around us. I especially have been mulling over the idea that these old trees are maybe not most useful as mother trees or carbon sinks, but as time machines to the deep past and distant futures, as ways to draw out the long-term thinkers in all of us. Next time you pass a particularly big or old tree, pause and sit with it for a moment. How does it make you feel? How does it recontextualize the thoughts that have been swirling around in your head all day? What kind of person do you want to be, or things do you want to do, after spending 10 minutes appreciating this tree? I know for me, I feel an urge to slow down, to not stress out about the small things, to be a better listener. this talk resonated with you, please consider sharing it with your friends. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or share the podcast or tell a friend about an episode you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to watch the full video of Jared Farmer's talk with lots of very beautiful images and videos of trees, learn more about Long Now's projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a Long Now member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. 
Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. As always, thank you to our production team. Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to next time. 